Hi, welcome to the Times of Israel's Daily Briefing. It's Thursday, November 10th, and I'm Jessica Steinberg. I'm joined today by political correspondent Tal Schneider and environmental reporter Sue Sirks. Hello, good morning to you both. Good morning. Hi, Jessica. Hi. So before we get started, let's hear a quick word from our sponsor. A scrappy army fighting three enemies. An unlikely victory and a country forever changed. Join host Dr. Noam Weissman for a special Unpacking Israeli History mini-series where he shares the story of the Six-Day War as you've never heard it before. Travel back to 1967 as Noam recounts the tense lead-up to war, the fierce battles fought, and the aftermath that continues to affect Israel to this day. But what led to this war? How did Israel emerge victorious? And how have the outcomes impacted Israel's position in the region and the world between then and now? Unpack the six days that changed Israel forever in this three-part special of Unpacking Israeli History. Listen to these episodes and more wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by Unpacked, a division of Open Door Media. We're going to talk this morning about the results of the midterm elections in the U.S. and how that will affect Prime Minister-elect Benjamin Netanyahu, as well as what's happening in coalition talks. We'll also hear from Sue, who is currently in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt, for the COP27 climate conference. Tal, let's get started with you uh, and this week's midterm elections in the U.S., where the Democrats seemed to have done quite well. How will that affect Prime Minister-elect Bibi Netanyahu and his plans for the future? So obviously, Netanyahu had a really good relationship with the Republican Party uh, and uh, specifically with uh, the former President Trump uh, until we heard Trump about uh, six months ago saying in his own voice that he was disappointed and then actually sort of cursing Netanyahu for some of the things. But Overall, I think Netanyahu had people who he could talk to very easily. It is not the case with the Democratic Party, who was always very suspicious towards him, specifically since his speech at the Congress in 2015. So Biden is actually a warm, you know, very warm to Netanyahu. We've seen it in Biden's trip to Israel back in July. It was very, very warm to him. That's fine. But the Democratic Party overall did not fail or, you know, the success of the Republican is very, very limited. It narrow win on the House and maybe dead hit on, on the Senate, which means that Biden and all of his administrations are not going to be such a uh, lame duck as you would expect. So that puts Netanyahu into a position where he has to to think of a Democratic, that, that the Democratic Party is much stronger than he believed. Now, let me just stress that, you know, you know, the election in the United States are about inflation, economic, also other issues. But if almost half of the public or, you know, very close to half voted for the Democratic, it means that on the economic front, they're not doing so bad. And Netanyahu has to take that into account. On the other hand, Benjamin Netanyahu has been, of course, in office many times, has been in this role before, of course. And he certainly is a skilled politician in that sense and knows where what his role is. So in that sense, 
he's got to work with what he has. How do you see him actually reacting in that sense? Well, obviously, the huge problem for Netanyahu talking to the Democratic, you know, side of the map, and I think also some people from the Republican side is this heavyweight coalition uh, partners that he's coming with. He's coming with the, you know, ultra-orthodox, that's probably fine, but he's also coming with people who had racist comments all over the years, both Smotrich and Ben Gvir and Avi Maoz. Uh, this is something that is problematic for for probably any administration, but I think maybe more heavily problematic for the Democratic administration. And having said that earlier that the Democratic uh, side is now not as weak as we as we thought, it's uh, you know it's it has implication. For example, yesterday in the negotiation at the president's house. President Isaac Herzog, who we remember was in the United States just 14 days ago. We were with him at that time. Um, I was there just 14 days ago. He came back from Washington just into the election. And with the election results, he was caught on mic, on open mic yesterday, saying the entire world is concerned about the far-right lawmaker Itamar Ben-Gvir, who is said to become uh, Israel's um, homeland security minister. Now, you know, if Netanyahu gives the defense ministry to that party as well, you know, both coming from the extreme right, this is something that people in Washington are going to be wide-eyed about that. You know, what's going on in Israel? The president didn't know that he was with the microphone open. But it, 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 because of that, we were revealed to the truth that we knew and we reported that people in Washington actually were concerned and asked him about that. But now it's coming from the president saying, listen, I'm getting phone calls from all around the world. People are worried. And, you know, the president's suggestion to Ben Gvir was go ahead, try to call some ambassadors, try to talk to them, and let's see, you know, you know, you you present yourself, and maybe they will be convinced that you are not as bad as you as you used to be because you present yourself as a more of a moderate person. Now, mm. I mean, come on, people are not are not so naive. For example, the American ambassador in Israel. You think that he will run to meet with Ben Gvir and Smotrich? I have to tell you, Jessica, that I spoke to another ambassador um, in Israel from coming from a very powerful Western democracy, not the United States. And he, he told me, that was a couple of months ago, it's not in the last week. He told me, you know, I've met Smotrich once and I'm never going to meet him again because things that were said in that meeting were, you know, this is my red line. This administration wanted very, very bad to have the visa waiver program, you know, continuing. Now that, you know, this government has changed the policies with respect to expelling people or policies with respect to civil rights, all of those policies, if they will be changed, this may affect, you know, a wide range of issues. I mean, I'm, I'm not telling what's going to happen because, you know, we have to wait. The government is not formed. But I think all eyes from D.C. are on this development here to see what's going on and how Netanyahu is able to to perform with this group of people uh, to his right. Right. So then playing off of that, Tal, tell us a little bit about what you've been hearing with regard to coalition talks. 
So there is a suggestion to change the law of return. For example, they want to take the grandchild clause out of the bill, out of the Israeli law. It means that if you're a grandson of a Jewish person, you will not be automatically um, granted citizenship in Israel. Um, this is a huge, huge, huge event. I, I don't even know if it's in, if it's in, in the cards at the moment. We you know most people suspect that Netanyahu will not agree, but you know, let's wait and see. We definitely know that some of the coalition partners, the ultra orthodox, this is what they wish for. Um, they are looking into, um, enlargement of, uh, subsid- subsidies to, Yeshivas and subsidies to uh, religious studies. Uh, Avimoz uh, wants to have a special new governmental uh, unit that will deal with Jewish identity. They think uh, kids in Israel don't study enough of Judaism. We're looking at uh, changing budget with respect to Judea and Samaria. Uh, ben Gvir and Smotrich are insisting on granting better infrastructure to some of the very small settlements uh, in Judea and Samaria. They are worried with what we call uh, the progressive change in Israel's IDF because they think there's um, too too many women in the military. I have to tell you, Jessica, this is just talks because Israel's chief IDF will not let that happen because they cannot... The Israel's IDF cannot perform without women in all roles. So that's, I don't think that's going to take place, but this is going to be the discourse. Tal, we obviously will keep on following this with you. Thank you very much. We're going to take a quick break. And when we're back, uh, Sue will tell us what it has been like in Sharm el-Sheikh this week for COP27 and some other matters regarding climate and Israel's technology. With what seems like an endless amount of information at our fingertips, we tend to forget that wondering about things is really part of the journey to finding answers we're looking for. So when it comes to the hot topics of Israel, Judaism, and Zionism, there's so much to wonder about right now that it's hard to know where to turn. Enter the latest weekly podcast from Unpacked, Wondering Jews with Michal and Noah. Join hosts and educator extraordinaires Michal Biton and Noam Weissman as they tackle these topics and the uncomfortable questions that surround them with the goal of working towards the answers together with their listeners. And tune in for a special episode featuring a fellow wanderer, Chaviv Retigur, out now. No matter where you're from, if you've ever wondered about anything, this is the podcast for you. Subscribe to Wandering Jews with Michal and Noam on your favorite podcast app today. Wandering Jews is brought to you by Unpacked, a division of Open Door Media. Okay, we're back. Sue, hello. Uh, you're in the press room at COP27 uh, in Sharm el-Sheikh in Egypt. What has it been like this year, this week? The first thing that I want to say is is to link in with what Tal was talking about. The midterms and the result of the midterms are going to be very, very important in the fight against climate. President Biden has passed a massive act to push forward work on on climate action. And the Israeli elections also, you know, it remains to be seen what effect the new government is going to have on... uh, on all sorts of issues connected to climate. We know that the ultra-Orthodox have already demanded and Netanyahu agreed, although we'll see what happens in practice, to a to scrap a tax hike on single-use plastic. 
so you know, it's a, we don't know what's going to happen there either. But meanwhile, in Sharm el Sheikh, um, the green carpet has really been rolled out here uh, in the form of lots of plants, lots of lawns. Uh, many of the lawns, you can still see the squares of turf because it's that new. Uh, there are solar-powered street lights. There are sparkling new bike paths, although I haven't actually seen a single bike. And there's recycling bins, which it turns out have been supplied by the um, the uh, the Kingdom of Sharjah in the UAE. So I don't know where you know what's going to happen to that in terms of the separated waste, whether it will just all be chucked in the same place in the end. So Egypt is definitely talking the talk. Uh, it'll evidently take longer for it to walk the walk because inside, you know, I didn't see any evidence of separation of waste. Really, the odd, uh, the odd recycling bin. Certainly, at the coffee bar in the Israeli pavilion, all the waste is going into the same bag, and the main food counter is selling beef burgers and Coca Cola in plastic cups. So there's still there's still a way to go. Now, last year in Glasgow, the focus was on mitigation, uh, which means. The efforts of the developed world and some of the big developing nations like India and China to bring down global warming emissions. This year, the tables are turned and the emphasis is on the victims of those emissions, if you like, what's referred to as the global south. So we've all seen these dreadful pictures of Pakistan underwater, um, of sea level rise starting to gobble up South Sea Islands and so forth. And the main talk here is on what's called loss and damage, which basically means compensating these countries for damage related to climate change and fulfilling an as yet unfulfilled promise by the West to channel $100 billion a year to the global South to help it adapt to the effects of climate change. Uh, Israel is not yet contributing to that loss and damage. It will have to start reporting on what it's doing from 2024. Historically, of course, the state's contribution to global warming has been infinitesimal. We weren't really around during the Industrial Revolution or the main part of the Industrial Revolution. And even today, it doesn't contribute much in the global sense. But we are a developed nation with a high GDP and the pressure will increase on us, uh, you know, to put our hands in our pockets as well. Israel has a massive delegation here. It's difficult to count because there's so many people coming in and out every day from government and academia and business and the third sector. Um, we have a pavilion for the first time ever at COP and the first time in Egypt for 37 years. It's very centrally located. It's large. It has a meeting room for 50 people and rolling films about 10 of the country's leading climate tech firms and a coffee bar, which is something of a hangout for the Israelis here. And throughout the conference, which ends on November 18th, the pavilion is holding around four events a day to promote what the country is doing in lots of aspects of climate. And there's a big emphasis on regional collaboration. And I'd like to mention three things that happened in that, uh, in, in that connection. A couple of, all of them actually, a couple of days ago. So the most notable, um, I'm not sure that people appreciate how important it was, was a meeting of presidents and prime ministers from the Eastern Mediterranean and the Middle East to approve a regional climate action plan that's been in the works for three years under the auspices of the politically neutral Cypriots. President Beherzog was supposed to represent Israel, but he had to fly home. He had other things to attend to connected to the election results. And so Tamar Zandberg, who's the outgoing environmental protection minister, stepped in. Israel sat in a small room with representatives from enemy states like Iraq and Lebanon, with no talk of you took this, you took that, you owe us the other. Officials have described it to me as something historic, 
and very moving. So that was one thing that I think was very important. Another thing, another development was possibly more of a PR exercise. It was a memorandum of understanding signed by Israel, Jordan and the UAE in the, pres in the presence of uh, John Kerry, the US climate envoy, relating to a deal signed a year ago whereby Jordan is to supply Israel with solar energy because it has huge deserts and lots of room, which Israel doesn't. And Israel will supply Jordan, which I think is the second most water-starved country in the world, with desalinated water. Um, last year's MOU was a document of intent, I was told. This year's uh, notes that the feasibility studies are showing potential for the project. And I am told that uh, by next year's COP, COP28, which will be held in the UAE, there will be actually something concrete to see. So, you know, watch that space. And the third event was a large one put on uh, two nights ago by the Israel Export in Institute, the Economy and Foreign Ministries and the Israel Manufacturers Association with representation from nearly 40 Israeli startup companies. But a really, really big presence of startup companies here. And there were roundtable discussions on water and energy and agriculture and food security. Now, I haven't been able to obtain a list of the attendees yet, and there were certainly many, many more Israelis there than non-Israelis. But there were people like a former uh, state leader from, from Malawi, certainly people from India. But I did underline the message that Israel is keen to convey at this conference, and that's that we have the technology to help the world deal with climate change. We want to share it and we want to build regional partnerships. Fascinating, Sue. Thanks. We're looking forward to reading uh, your reports from uh, Sharm el-Sheikh. So thank you for that. Okay, we're going to close out today's daily briefing. Thank you, Tal, and thank you, Sue. Thank you, Jessica. Pleasure. We will be back with another daily briefing on Sunday. Tomorrow we have a Times Will Tell with Eitan Pellet, a singer-songwriter in English, Arabic, and Hebrew. He writes songs for Noah Kirel and Mergay, and also will be talking about his own work. And he's on this year's Eurovision team. So have a listen to that. In the meantime, have yourselves a good day and a good listen. Thanks for listening to the Times of Israel's Daily Briefing. And thanks to our producer, Gilad Brownstein, and to Gili Amar for this out-of-this-world music. You can find us daily wherever you find your podcasts. And on our mothership, timesofisrael.com. Like what you hear? Consider rating us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify to spread the word. And be sure to check out our weekly feature, Times Will Tell, released every Friday. Until next time. Shalom. Shalom.